One of the greatest dangers the body of Christ faces today is the temptation to rethink and rearticulate the gospel in a way that makes its center something other than the death of Jesus on the cross in the place of sinners. again and welcome to another episode of the all of life show i am one of your hosts Stuart white along with my beautiful and lovely wife alicia white how are you doing babe i'm doing very well um we finally finished i shouldn't say we mostly you finished um, one of the bathrooms that we were doing the remodel on other than i think one one or two little things so that feels good we've got a toilet back in there the kids don't have to come to our room in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom yes so i've gotten decent sleep <laughs> the yeah, last I, night i think we mentioned it on the last episode but we decided to remodel our guest bathroom that the kids use at the same time we redid the counters in our bathroom so we had no sinks in our bathroom and no toilet in their bathroom. So it was like everybody's going back and forth to wash their hands or use the bathroom. So yeah, it was it was pretty intense. But I would also like to give us some credit because we are recording this in the morning, which as you guys might remember in our uh, in our New Year's not resolution <laughs> episode, uh, we talked about that being one thing that we wanted to do is not recording so late at night. So um, so I'm here. We are. Us. Well, here we are. Yeah. yeah. Good morning. It may guys. be the very same day that we're going to release the podcast, but you <laughs> don't know that, that. You don't have to tell don't them. Have to tell them that. <laughs> yeah. Well, other than that, I went snowboarding. No, not snowboarding. Snowmobiling. Yeah. <laughs> over the weekend, and who knew that that could burn so many calories? Now, this could be a misread, but my Apple Watch that tracked my calories burned. Like it wasn't even 10 a.m. and it said I had burned like 900 active calories and my goal for every day is like 700. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is going to be insane by the time I get back. So we went about 50 miles on snowmobiles and that is a workout. You wouldn't think like, oh, well, you're sitting on this this machine. It's doing all the work. No, you're really like having to use your whole body. And uh, I burned 1,700 calories in a <laughs> you lucky day back. before like 3 p.m. Yeah. So, uh, and then I felt like it too, the rest of the day, we, we went to a birthday party that night and I felt yeah. like destroyed. Like I just, here I am a couple days later and we were like, do we have to get out of bed? Like, I'm just so, so exhausted, but if you it was guys, worth it. If you guys don't live in central Oregon, uh, something you may not know is that there is a huge, um, snow community here that we have several mountains within 30 minutes drive from where we live. And, um, so there's actually a little resort, uh, up on Mount bachelor that you can only get to this little lodge for lunch on, um, on snowmobiles yeah. or if you like cross country ski or snowshoe the way in. So it's super quaint. I've actually never been several of my friends have, but that's where Stu went for lunch. So yeah, it was really cool. How adorable is that? Yeah. Yeah, it was great. So highly recommend it. Shout out to my friend Emmanuel for inviting me on his new snowmobiles. That was so fun. So babe, what are we talking about today? This morning we are going to talk about what we promised we would talk about last week. We are explaining what is the gospel and kind of breaking that down because I think a lot of Christians throw out the term gospel, but there are actually a lot of different ideas out there of what the gospel is. And only one of those ideas is correct. So we are breaking it down and talking about the one idea that's correct. Yeah. And to help us along the way here, we're going to be referencing a book by a guy named Greg Gilbert. 
And the book is cleverly titled, What is the Gospel? You couldn't even guess what that's probably about. But uh, And also, I'm borrowing some notes from a guy named Mark Minter. He has uh, his own website, his blog. It's markminter.com. So you can check it out. Uh, we'll put the notes in the show notes. We'll put a link to that. Anyway, so this book does a great job, though, of laying out the gospel in a simple way. It's very short. It's like less than 100 pages. I think it's something like 88 pages, in fact. Um, and it's been around for a little while. I, I got it, I think, around 2010 and really started digging into it and got the audiobook, got the um, Kindle version of it, all, all of the book versions I could. And I think I've listened to the audiobook maybe five or six times. In fact, I re-listened to it yesterday while we were finishing tiling, while I was grouting the tile and put it on like one in 1.4 speed and finished the entire thing in two hours. Um, and it was just a great refresher. So in the book, though, he makes the point that a lot of Christians use the term the gospel, but they don't actually know what the definition of those terms are. And that doesn't even mean that they aren't necessarily saved. It just means that they might disagree on what the points are that you need to get the gospel out there. So in the beginning of it, he starts to describe uh, some different evangelical pastors, these people, these different evangelical pastors. Like I was reading some of it to you last night, right? And mm -hmm. it's like, these guys are pastors and the description that they give, some of them are completely contrary to the other person's description, like mutually exclusive that you couldn't even say this one is they're pretty much the same. They're, you know, they're just talking about two different sides of the same coin. No, like they're really describing something completely opposite. So from everything to God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Is that the gospel? Is it the gospel to say, God wants you to think positive thoughts. He wants you to have great, greater joy in life. And if you would just surrender your negativity, things like that, these are actual evangelical pastors, supposedly, who are saying these things. And Greg Gilbert goes through and he's like, I'm not going to tell you which ones are right or wrong, but my hope is at the end of this, you'll be able to distinguish that yourself. And I would say at the end of this episode, hopefully you will be able to have a better grasp of what the gospel is. So in the book, he uses a, an example, uh, really an outline, that takes you from four key things, starting with God, then going to man, then Christ, and response. And he gets this uh, from Romans, because he says you could go you know, a, a number of ways. You could investigate this and try to determine what is the gospel. You could do a word study in the Bible. Uh, but there may be times where, actually, like in the book of Acts, you have them preach the gospel. A lot of people get saved, and nobody says the word gospel, right? They just declare what Jesus has done. So if you were to just say, well, I'm going to do a word study in the Bible and look up every time the word gospel appears, you actually might be leaving out big pieces of the gospel. Because when it's being used, it's being assumed that it's understood, and you actually have uh, in Romans chapters one through four, Paul lays out this um, starting with God, that God is creator of everything, that he made it all. He gets to say what things exist and how things should be. And then he goes on to man and saying, but this is what man did. Man sinned 
and caused chaos to enter the world. Man destroyed everything with this rebellion. And I, I like that in the book, I remember this one point that he makes. He says that um, when Adam and Eve actually ate of the fruit, it wasn't just that they were breaking some arbitrary law, but they were actually staging a coup against God because the thing that Satan came to them and told them was, you will be like God if you eat of it. You won't die. You will be like God. And I think I've, we've shared this on the show before, but I remember hearing that as even a little kid and going, well, that sounds great. Why wouldn't I want to be like God? Then we would be like buddies. You know, we could be buddy gods. We, <laughs> we could be, um, I would understand him better and not realizing like, no, there is one God. You couldn't actually be like God because then who would God be? Breaking it down to a smaller analogy, imagine if you had a child, uh, you you birthed your own child, and you loved that child, and then that child said, um, no, actually, I want to be the parent with you. No, there's only, there's the parent and there is the child. You don't get to, as a child, become the parent right away. Yeah, yeah. So, so continuing on here, um, we'll, I'll use some of these notes here. He basically just took notes. That's Mark Minter. He took notes throughout the book, uh, just verbatim from each section. And so he's got 22 little notes here. But starts off with, it's to God's word that we look in order to find what he has said to us about his son Jesus and about the good news of the gospel. That seems obvious to like most people if you're Orthodox Christian and you believe that the Bible is our ultimate source of truth, but to a lot of people now, especially in more progressive, emerging, whatever you want to call it, types of Christianity, the Bible is sort of a useful tool among other spiritual books, and but it's not a source of absolute truth. And so we affirm that, first of all, that we look to Scripture because God himself has revealed himself through Scripture. Second, it says uh, in the book, we approach the task of defining the main contours of the Christian gospel, as we mentioned earlier, not by doing a word study, but looking at what the earliest Christians said about Jesus and the significance of his life, death, and resurrection. Okay, so we kind of covered that a little bit, but then we have God, man, Christ response. Again, Paul tells us that it is to God to whom we are accountable, to whom the readers are accountable, specifically in Romans 1 through 4. Second, we have man, and Paul tells his readers that their problem is that they have rebelled against God. So setting the stage very early, you have rebelled against God. And something as a little aside here, often what you see is people will start immediately with man, and maybe not saying man, but they'll start with, uh, you are a terrible sinner, mm -hmm. which is true, but they have no reference or framework as to, based on what standard, you know, who... Who am I accountable to? So it's Because very it doesn't important. matter if you don't believe that there was a God who created the universe and who created you. Right. If there wasn't a God, then it doesn't matter that you're a horrible sinner because right. you get to choose what's right and wrong. Right. And it, it might seem kind of obvious, but you might miss this, is in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created. It starts with God. And a lot of times the way people present things, it starts with man. It starts with sin. It starts with all this other stuff, but people don't really have any reference. It'd be like you um, you have crossed over a border into another country and somebody comes to you and says, you have broken the law. And you're like, what, what, 
what law, what country, what are you even talking about? It doesn't matter. You've just broken the law. It would be much more useful if they said, hey, uh, this is uh, Monrovia or whatever, and you have uh, trespassed into this country and you have brought uh, illegal goods and here are the laws you've broken. The and, king has set forward yeah. these laws and you broke them. Well, then you just reply with, I don't care. I don't believe there is a king. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And then it gets more and more complicated. <laughs> and then you end up in Monrovian jail. Yeah. So we have God and man. And then uh, third is Christ. So Paul says that God's solution to humanity's sin is the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So often what you hear in the pulpits, in some well-meaning evangelist even, is more that God has come to make you happy, to make you healthy, to make you whole. You have some of the health and wealth gospels. You have all kinds of things, but it doesn't even need to be that far out and extreme to be off a few degrees. And people don't like telling other people about sin, especially that they are sinners and that they need to be held accountable to God and they are accountable to God. They would rather tell them that kind of, hey, good news, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. I've heard it uh, also put like this. It, imagine that you're on a plane. I, I think, uh, I forget who I got this from, but you're on a plane and the flight attendant hands you a parachute and says, here, you might need this. And you go, what? Like, what? why? And she, don't, don't ask questions. Just put this on. And you eventually put it on and it's awkward and uncomfortable and you're sitting in your seat and there's turbulence, but it's not real bad. And you're finally like, this is stupid. I'm getting rid of this. I don't need this to, to be in this plane. That would be kind of like people who get the gospel preached to them in a way of, here, this will make your life better. Here, this, this will make you happy and, and whole. Instead, it should be, hey, uh, hate to tell you this, but the plane's going to crash. We've lost the engines, and you're going to need to jump out of the plane. You're going to need to put your trust in this parachute and put it on and be ready to, to jump because your your life depends upon it. That's a big difference, right? And and still, it's not a perfect analogy for sin, like as if, you know, because of their sin, the plane's going to crash or something. But the faith, rather, that you're putting it in the right things for the right reasons and being told the real truth about the situation. Another one of the most detrimental versions of the gospel that you hear is that um, Jesus died on the cross for your sins and therefore, and, and you have been given the Holy Spirit and now you have, um, you are working for that, um, reconciliation. So Jesus did something, but now it's your job to follow all of the rules in the Bible so that you can one day get to heaven and make Jesus happy. It's like it, the only part that was true about that whole statement was that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, but completely missing the point of why he did it. Yeah. Yeah. If, if again, what we're emphasizing here is the importance of telling the true, accurate biblical gospel and Everybody gets a little confused about this, and I think there are a number of reasons, but one of them is that uh, they think, like we said earlier, the gospel is going to be in this clearly laid out word picture in one verse, and everything is right there. And so they, they look for that. They Often this is a mistake I think people make with much of scripture, is they treat every verse as if it came right out of the book of Proverbs, where it's a standalone, on its own truth that is supposed to be conveyed in just one line or so. 
And if you don't understand that there are different genres of scripture, that there are different um, types of writing that are happening, different topics that are being covered, you'll miss the point of the context. It would be much like if I was away at war or something and I wrote you a letter and you decided I'm just going to read paragraph two, uh, line one, and it said, the food is really good here. And you decided to go, oh, he's doing great. The food is really good. But then you missed the context of the rest of the letter where I said, yeah, I've been captured and, <laughs> and uh, they're, they're being good to me, but the food is good, um, but I don't know when I'll be home. You would miss the entire context. So context is very important. And that's found in the surrounding context. And it's even found in the Bible as a whole, scripture, interpreting scripture, that kind of thing. So we have God, man, Christ, and then we have response. Finally, Paul tells his readers how they can be included in this salvation. So he goes on and it says, uh, we can see at the heart of the proclamation of the gospel are answers to four crucial questions. Who made us and to whom are we accountable? That's one question, really. Number two is, what is our problem? In other words, are we in trouble and why? Three, what is God's solution to that problem and how has he acted to save us from it? And number four, how do I, myself right here, right now, how do I come to be included in that salvation? What makes this good news for me and not just for someone else? So whatever else you think of the creation story, the implications of this claim that God created the world and especially that God created you are enormous. And that's something our whole show is built on, right? We have the all of life show. We, our whole thesis, our statement about the show is that the gospel is for all of life. The way it's treated is often that we, it's your doorway into the kingdom. And then once you're in there, and I think Tim Keller has said this and a few others, but once you're in there, then you get to look into the really deeper spiritual things like the Greek word for this word or that thing or um, the, the secret knowledge or whatever. And that's where people get tripped up is they start thinking like, I need to leave the truth of the gospel and find something else. And that's where you find things like in the book of Galatians, where Paul is writing to believers who have essentially abandoned the faith in the simple faith in what Christ has done. And now they're embracing a works-based righteousness, a works-based salvation. They've actually been taking on uh, circumcision again as a means of showing your salvation because they had these people, they called them the Judaizers and they would go around and they would say, no, in order to become a Christian, first you must become a Jew. And so you must do the things that are necessary because the, everything came through the Jews, right? Christ came through the Jews. So you got to be Jewish. You got to keep the law. You got to get circumcised. You can't do anything. So they put people back under the law. Paul was having none of that. And he even went as far as saying, these people who are bothering you, I wish that they would just go ahead and cut everything off. You know, he's using very vulgar terminology, mm -hmm. actually. But he's saying, well, if, it, if a little bit makes you righteous, why not just show how righteous you are and go all the way? And uh, you, actually, you have historically, you have like some people who monks or whatever who would uh, do similar things, they would castrate themselves or whatever to show that they're fully devoted to God because they had a very twisted view of what the gospel was for them. They thought that it was still a performance gospel. I must do in order to earn. I must perform in order to get God's favor and keep God's favor. Um, I've known people myself 
um, even even family members and others who have had a, a very and even me, I've I've struggled with this. Had a very bad emphasis on their works in order to maintain their salvation, rather than seeing their good works as something that comes from their salvation, from the joy that comes from knowing Jesus, from being redeemed, from the Holy Spirit empowering you. It, it uh, became if I sin, if I have a bad thought, if I. Um, had a, have a dirty dream or something in the middle of the night and I died, I would go to hell because I have to keep getting saved over and over and over again. And you, you see this in certain denominations where every single week they have an altar call. Every single week, it's the same people who were there the previous week back at the altar. You know, we, um, I was just thinking of this the other day. There's that worship song, Oh, Come to the Altar, The Father's Arms Are Open Wide. They're in that particular movement and denomination, which I, I love the song, but as I think about the lyrics more, an altar is something that in that denomination is the place where you, you invite everybody forward to to repent. And the thing is, is the, the altar, the sacrifice of God, we see altars in the Old Testament. We see Moses and um, Abraham. Abraham is offering up his son to God on an altar, and then what is in his place but a ram in the thicket who replaces Isaac, and Abraham sacrifices that to the Lord. I think where things get a little confused then is people think, I will lay down my sin on that altar and sacrifice that to the Lord. And instead of seeing, no, it was Christ who was crucified once for all, for the sins of all, and he laid down his life. And you come to him, and yes, you do lay down yourself. You give your life, your, your sin to him. But if you get this sort of weird, twisted picture in your head, you end up thinking like, I am somehow earning something. I am somehow giving, you know, a sacrifice of my life and sin in order to appease God. And I think that's where that kind of goes off the rails a bit. Going back to the parent-child analogy, and we've said this many times, but it does your identity is so involved in this right here because one of our first identities that we feel as a child is um, the identity of who we are in our family. We are the child, they are the parent. Um, so when Stu is talking about working from a more legalistic idea of the gospel, imagine um, two separate relationships with your with your father, your biological father on earth. One would be, um, you know, no matter what you do, your, your identity is a child of his. He loves you. Uh, he will never forsake you. You could do all of the bad things and that would not change how he loves you. It may change the consequences you have in your life, but it does not change how he loves you. And then the other one would be, you are a child of this father who mandates that you have to follow all of the rules very specifically and you cannot mess up. And when you do mess up, he's disappointed in you and frustrated in you. And so when you when you think of your relationship with God, I think the way that we view our, our earthly fathers has a big um influence on who we think God is and we have to fight against that and or we don't because we may have had a father who loved the Lord and who treated us very well with grace and love and unconditionally but a lot of us didn't and that shapes the way that we think of the gospel and we our worldview of of God 
Yeah. And again, like our, our last week's episode on a Christian worldview, on that sacred and secular divide that happens because our Western culture has mandated that the sacred be a separate world away from the public life of um, the, the secular world. So if you, if you think that way, then you compartmentalize things and you begin to say, I don't really see how the, this Bible stuff, I don't really see how my faith um, has anything to do with my job. I don't really see how it has anything to do with my parenting or my marriage or the um, way that I, I show up with my friends, the way that I recreate, the, the things that I do for fun doesn't really doesn't inform any of that so it i don't i don't see the importance of it uh and so here here's an interesting thought is scripture it says in the book proclaims over and over that god is a god of perfect justice and unassailable righteousness meaning he is not as some assume changing from who he was a lot of people look at the old testament and they go oh man i'm glad god is not like he was then he's sort of cooled off the new testament god is the much more loving much more tolerant much more patient uh god and uh in the, in the book he tells this story he uses this example of hey picture god and he's just this this gentle old man and he used to be a, a bit grumpier and stuff but he's he's mellowed out quite a bit and um He's just really glad that he can get any time with you at all. And, you know, and, you know, what, what else can you do except you, you just show up and he appreciates whatever, you know, and it's just showing him as sort of this emaciated, weak, powerless kind of old God in the sky. And it, it's, it's almost ridiculous. And that's the, the point of it is how absurd that is. But he's actually saying this is the way a lot of Christians think of God that he's just sort of been relegated to this sidelined um, deity that doesn't really have any input or any say or any care about what's going on. He's just glad to be able to get to spend a little bit of time with you. And people will use that kind of thinking and say that this justifies then that, uh, you know, God doesn't have any say in my sex life. God doesn't have any say in the, the things I do for fun, where I spend my money, how I manage things in my life. Because, you know, he, he's just he's just trying to chill. He's he's kind of in a soft retirement. It's that T-shirt that says Jesus is my co-pilot. Yeah. Or Jesus is my homeboy. Yeah. <laughs> that was the, that was a good one. So put simply, the Bible tells us that Jesus is both completely human and completely God. This is a crucial point to understand about him, for it is only the fully human, fully divine son of God who can save us. Uh, and then he, uh, here I'm reading these points again. So. Uh, Number 12, faith and repentance. This is what marks out those who are Christ's people or Christians. In other words, a Christian is one who turns away from his sin and trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ and nothing else to save him from sin and the coming judgment. So putting your faith in Christ means that you utterly renounce any other hope of being counted righteous before God. That goes back to that Galatians thing. If you we, and we do this. We do this all the time. The book of Hebrews talks about how we drift away from the gospel, how we drift away from Christ, and it happens slowly over time. We need every day to have that gospel reminder. It doesn't mean we drift away from actually that we are saved, but we drift away from our hope being fixed on the right thing. If you have ever tried to do something like we just recently did where we laid tile and had to have a lot of precision, we had to have things just right to have them square, if you tried to eyeball that, you might think that your eyes are seeing things just right. 
until you hold a standard to that and you measure against what it is that you are trying to accomplish. And so you have a ruler, you have a square, you have, you know, measuring tape and all those things. You realize, wow, my ability with my own eyes to see things that I think I'm seeing clearly is really poor. I was thinking of this the whole time I was trying to lay things out. And I took a lot of time because I don't tile on a regular basis. I used to do some of this like years and years ago, but I didn't actually lay a lot of tile. And I was like probably a good day or two where I was making sure, how do I actually make sure that this is square? Uh, Because if you trust your walls in your house, your walls usually aren't that square. Sometimes you get lucky and they're really square, uh, square. But because the way the studs are in your walls and the way that the drywall gets nailed to it, it actually can have a bit of a wave or a bow to it. So you might start going, oh, well, I'll just lay this tile here. I'll just start with the wall. That's going to be square. And then you get going and you're like, oh, I'm all the way out here. And you drifted because of that one little variation right there. One or two degrees doesn't seem like much. And as you move out, oh, all, all of a sudden it's a lot more. It's a lot further apart. Well, that's what happens with the gospel quite a bit. If we go throughout our day and we fail to remember that the gospel actually is for every area of life, we begin to put our hope in something else instead of Christ. And it happens in subtle ways, right? My hope is that I will win the lottery. My hope is that I will get a better job or get a job or lose a job. My hope is that, like for us, we, we, we've hoped, man, it'd be great to get a house with some property. Not that that's a wrong thing, but it can quickly take our heart away. Our, also, our hope can be uh, caught up in a works-based righteousness, right? Where we say, if I could just obey the law better, I think then my life would really improve. I would have such a more meaningful existence. You know, if I could get up every morning and read my Bible for two hours I bet you in a year's time, I would practically be, you know, the fourth member of the Trinity. I, I'd at least be up there with Mary, you know, like <laughs> I'd be so righteous. That's how our hearts are drawn. Because of sin, we tend to deviate from the truth. And the gospel acts as that perfect judge, that perfect ruler and square to check in on ourselves and go, uh, where am I? And we belong ourselves, right, to this Uh, community group and we dig into each other's lives and do this very thing where we'll talk about what's going on but then we'll also be bold and speak to each other and say hey here's what I think I see here Or, or we'll ask good questions that draw out things of the heart because our hearts naturally tend to want to deceive ourselves right that is why it's important that we have a standard, we have something to follow. So, as he says here, putting your faith in Christ means that you utterly renounce any other hope of being counted righteous before God. Uh, coming up here, too, to have faith in Jesus is at its core to believe that he really is who he says he is, the crucified and risen king who conquered death and sin and who has the power to save. Now, how could a person believe all that, trust in it, and rely on it, and yet at the same time say, but I don't acknowledge that you, Jesus, are king over me? This comes from something that's, I think, probably been wrestled with throughout Christianity. Jesus is Lord and Savior, and people will go, well, he's my Savior. I got the fire insurance, but then they'll say, but I can now live like hell because, you know, well, I'm choosing not to really make him Lord. 
And in the book here, he's arguing, you can't really do that. If, if he is your savior, he is your Lord. If he is your king, uh, then you serve your king, right? And so we can't let that take us away from the gospel. And the other important thing to remember is that as if you were crossing over into Monrovia and someone said you broke the rules because the king set the rules, no matter what, you are going to have the consequences of that king, the the rules that that king set apart, whether you believe him or not. And that's that comes in that response portion of the gospel is you can decide for yourself that you don't believe that there's a God that created the universe but you still have that choice to make for yourself. That's what free will is. But when you die, you will find out. And just because you didn't believe it doesn't make it not so. Another thing that people will talk about is the kingdom of God. And this tends to get a little confusing. And while this may not seem like a direct part of the gospel, understanding that this principle here actually helps you understand how the gospel relates to your life right here and now. So the kingdom of God, uh, in the book, he defines it simply as it's God's redemptive rule, reign, and authority over those redeemed by Jesus. So when Jesus was claiming the kingdom of God, uh, he was claiming that it had been inaugurated in him. Uh, A lot of people will like to take this too far, though, and they will try and say everything is like we're, we're... in the perfect world now because the kingdom of God is here. There's even a belief of eschatology which says we're making the world more and more perfect and bringing heaven down in order to make it good enough that Jesus can reign here. And if you read scripture, that is not biblical. It actually says that things will go from bad to worse. People will become evil. Children will disobey. They will become lovers of selves rather than lovers of God. There will be envy, hate, strife, murder, all kinds of evil. And this is going to happen before Christ returns. So if you think that your job here on earth is to make everyone else be really, really good, to beautify it and get it ready, I don't think that's a biblical belief. What this means, though, of the kingdom is that many of the blessings of the kingdom are already ours. But the kingdom of God is not yet completed, and it will not be completed until Jesus returns. So you've heard people say it's the already but not yet. That's This is part of the gospel when you're, you're telling people. It's important if you're saying, hey, you have this thing, and if you, if you accept it and receive it, then you are in the kingdom. And they're like, cool, and they're expecting everything's going to be perfect then, right? This is where you see a lot of Christians go off the rails, new Christians, because they're like, I was told that my drug addiction, my porn addiction, my whatever thing would just magically go away, because that's what the pastor who shared with me told me. He said that he used to be a drug addict. He used to be all these things. And then he got saved, and everything immediately went away. And I, I know of a pastor who that was his message, and then come to find out he's been having affairs and doing all these things like it never really went away. But he, what you could probably say happened is he thought he was helping the gospel by making it look like I got saved and became perfectly sinless without really saying perfectly sinless, but all the things that I struggled with went away. And you do a big disservice to people and you make them, you put burdens on them where they think, oh, well, there must be something wrong with me. I must not have done it right. I must need to show God more sincerity. I must need to, like I was saying earlier, get up earlier, read the Bible more, and this will fix the thing that I'm still struggling with. And they're embarrassed to bring that up, right? Because 
everyone else apparently has everything figured out and they're they're fine and everything's solved. Uh, no, that's not the case. So the great hope for Christians is the thing for which we long and to which we look for strength and encouragement is the day when our king will part the skies and return to establish his glorious kingdom finally and forever. And then the way to be included in Christ's kingdom is to come to the king, not just hailing him as a great example who shows us a better way to live, but humbly trusting him as the crucified and risen Lord who alone can release you from the sentence of death. So the church in the book here, he says, is the arena in which God has chosen above all to showcase his wisdom and glory of the gospel. Again, emphasizing the need for the church, emphasizing the need for the community. Final point here in the book, he says, I believe one of the greatest dangers the body of Christ faces today is the temptation to rethink and rearticulate the gospel in a way that makes its center something other than the death of Jesus on the cross in the place of sinners. You know, that is really at the core of what most people are trying to avoid. I believe in the book, he says this too. He says, you can try and be as cool as you want. You can have the coolest bands, the Christian music, the best fog show, lights at your church. But the moment you start declaring a crucified Messiah, you are weird. So you have to accept that. You have to accept that this sounds nuts. This sounds crazy. If you try to help the gospel out, it ends up cutting the legs out from it. You end up with an emaciated gospel. He refers to it in the book. Emaciated preaching of an emaciated gospel leads to an emaciated people. You don't want that. You want to be giving people the fullness of the word. It's like if you were to say, only thing I'm going to eat from here on out is uh, white bread. What do you know? In a year's time, you've got all of these health conditions because you're lacking the proper nutrition that you need. And what needs to be done is you need to go back to the proper diet. And in the word, in scripture, with the gospel, it's fully understanding and grasping and embracing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Babe, uh, you've heard of an elevator pitch, right? Yes, I am familiar. <laughs> um, I think a lot of times what Christians have a hard time doing is they may even understand some of this, but even going through this, this episode, there are a lot of there's a lot of stuff in that. You may be able to break it down into four simple points, but there's a lot of stuff when someone hears that that could be overwhelming. If you were to if you were to enter an elevator with someone and they want to know about your faith and they and you were to tell them uh, you were to explain to them what is the gospel how would you how would you say it in uh, simple and concisely yeah well i would still use what he has here the god man christ response as my mental framework and so i would start with there is a god who has made everything and you are accountable to that god but something happened. We have rebelled against that God. He is a perfect, holy, and righteous God, and we have chosen to go against him. Because of that, we're separated from him, and we deserve eternal death. But God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, who was perfect and sinless, and he died the sinner's death in our place, taking on the sins of the whole world. He was crucified, he was buried, and he was raised again by the power of God on the third day. And he conquered Satan's sin and death. And now he lives with the Father at his right hand, eternally making intercession for us. And you have an opportunity 
to respond to the message of the good news of the gospel, that Jesus Christ has died for your sins, that you no longer have to be a rebel against God, that you can be made right with him, and you need to receive what he has given to you. I think that would be a very simple way of declaring it. Obviously, most of the time in conversations, you're going to end up having questions. You're going to end up having interruptions. And so you're going to have to be prepared for that. But if you can keep this idea that God created everything, you're accountable to God, man sinned, fell away from God, is separate from God, but God made a way in Christ Jesus. And that way is available to you. And how will you respond? Will you receive this? It's beautiful. It's simple. But also, you can take those things. There are implications through all of it, all of life. The gospel implications are there. If God made everything, God knows how it works. If we come back to God and we say, why is this in my life? What What is going on? If we understand that the brokenness of the entire world is because of that sin, that it is because of us. We Our daughter came to us um, yesterday. She's kind of been asking some of these questions. And she had heard some really sad story about some family that had been killed by a serial killer and only one person survived. And she shouldn't have heard about this. And she was really distraught about it. She had come to us and she was like, why does God let evil happen? Or really, I think she even asked, why does God make all this evil? Why does God do bad things? Yeah. And this is like a whole nother episode we could do on Mm -hmm. the problem of evil. But it gave me an opportunity with her with this very sort of framework. I was, in fact, in the middle of listening to the audiobook again, just to kind of refresh. And I explained to her, God did not create sin. Man created sin. I said, can you imagine Adam and Eve, had they had the foresight to see the destruction that just that one action caused? And and I said, it's not that this fruit was terrible and evil. It's not that uh, it was something like about that thing that had this magic power over it. It was the heart that they did it with. They had the choice to obey God and love God and stay in relationship or to rebel against God and have a coup and declare themselves God. And all of sin basically follows that same pattern. People are constantly sinning against each other, being sinned against, and causing evil because of the sin that has been passed down to them. Um, So for my daughter, it was like, okay, this makes more sense now. But if you don't have that framework, uh, she she got this idea talking to somebody else that, oh, it was God who caused all of this. It's like God gets a, a bad rap on a lot of these things because people just go, well, if he's God, he must be in control of everything. Um, and he is. He has power. But being powerful and in control does not mean that you are doing those evil things. He's actually, as scripture puts it, desiring that none should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. He's patient. It says he's not slow as some count slowness, but that he actually is patient and loving and waiting and desiring that all should come to repentance. So when you see this evil, it's hard for us to comprehend. But if you can recognize that God is actually, even in that, somehow being patient and waiting, and there is a chance even for the most evil, the most rebellious person to turn away. That's the beautiful thing about the gospel is that 
it not only transcends all time and culture and applies to everything, no matter where, how culture and time fluctuates, but it's the most inclusive message that there ever was because no matter what you've done in your life, no matter the wrong things, no matter the, the laws you've broken or the people you've hurt or the, the ways in which you have rejected God or rebelled against him, he still keeps the door open for you and you still get to join his family. You still get to be adopted by him as a loving father who loves you unconditionally. So guys, we hope that this has helped. And we know this is, we're trying to cram a lot of extra information and details and theology. You know, I told you that book on one and a half speed almost was still two hours. And we're trying to convey a lot of these ideas in uh, 45 minutes or so. This is a longer episode even, and you can convey it in a way like the elevator pitch, but it doesn't just stop there. Like, as we said, the implications are endless. That's because God is eternal. God is endless. So everything of this has something to do and some way to speak into your life. So we invite you, if you are that person and you aren't sure what you believe, we ask you to respond to that gospel, that you are in rebellion against God that he has loved you and that he has sent his son Jesus to die for you in your place, receiving your penalty and your punishment that you deserve for your sin. And he trades his righteousness for you. It's the ultimate trade. Why wouldn't you take that trade? If somebody came to you and said, Hey, I want to trade uh, this million dollar vehicle for your little uh, broken down Honda. It would seem like the most obvious trade, With God, it's even better. It's infinitely greater than that. You get his infinite perfection and righteousness put upon you so that when you stand before God, you have Christ's righteousness covering you. His blood has covered you and paid for that penalty. So guys, we love you. We thank you for listening. If you have questions, please feel free to write in. You can reach us at feedback at alloflifeshow.com. You can also hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Um, And you can go to our website, www.alllifeshow.com, and you can find links to all those things. Yep. Remember to check the show notes and we will include all of the important information if you want to pick up the book or uh, reference this article. God bless. And we will see you next week.